This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 6. John 6, and I will be reading verses 1 through 21. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has but five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word once again this evening, we pray that by your spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would see in it Jesus' power and authority, the authority which only comes from one who is God. We pray that because of this power that is on display, that we would not only know Jesus, but worship and adore him as he deserves and as you have required of us. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we return tonight to John's Gospel, we pick up right after the confrontation with the Jewish leaders that we saw last week in chapter 5. Although the situation was very tense and that they wanted to put Jesus to death, Jesus evaded them for the time being. His time to die, his time to suffer had not yet come, and so he would not allow himself yet to fall into their hands. Now we have seen throughout the Gospel of John, and particularly in the more recent passages, we have seen Jesus' authority on display. We have seen it in the miracles that he has done. Also in the case he made last week in the text we looked at, calling the various witnesses to his defense that testified rightly concerning him, that he was the Son of God, that he was one with the Father, and that he had all power and authority. Jesus is exercising his power and authority over nature on a grand scale. That is what we see tonight. In fact, we will see this in these two miracles that Jesus performs. First, this miracle of miraculous feeding. And then second, Jesus exercising his sovereignty and power over the winds and waves of the sea. So we'll look at this text tonight in four points. Three dealing with that first miracle, and then one dealing with the second. First, we see Jesus' popularity in verses 1 through 3. Because of what has been happening thus far, Jesus has now attracted a very large following. And second, we see Jesus' predicament in verses 4 through 9. Because of this large crowd that now follows Jesus, we see some logistical problems that have to be dealt with. And Jesus actually using them to put his disciples to the test. And third, we see Jesus' provision. Jesus will exercise his authority over creation. He will exercise his supernatural power to solve this problem is what we see in verses 10 through 15. And fourth and finally, we see a raw display of Jesus' power. We will see him exercise his authority even over the mighty seas in verses 16 through 21. So we have Jesus' popularity and then a predicament and then provision and then power. So first we see Jesus' popularity in these first three verses. We do not see here in the text the resolution to the conflict in chapter 5 that we saw last week. We don't see how Jesus got away at that time, because remember, they were ready to put him to death, but he did. And we read that after this, likely to avoid such further conflict, until the appointed time, Jesus goes back to Galilee. Now, while it is not immediately clear from the text, there has likely been several months that passed from chapter 5 to chapter 6. We know this because Jesus had previously been in Jerusalem for a feast that had come after the previous Passover in chapters 2 and 3. But then we see in verse 4 of chapter 6 that another Passover is coming up. So between those chapters and here, roughly a year has passed, and so probably some months from chapter 5 to chapter 6. We see that in light of the miracles so far in John and others that are not recorded here, a great multitude has taken to following Jesus. Now, at first glance, it might seem like that's a good thing. Well, people are following Jesus. They're paying attention to him. 
And surely some are following with sincerity, believing in Jesus' message and earnestly seeking him. But as will unfold later in this very chapter, many are not following Jesus for the truth of his word, but for the temporal benefits of following him, the earthly goods, the stuff they get, the material blessings they get from following Jesus. Jesus is popular now, and there's always a tendency when there's a teacher or a leader of any kind in any field who suddenly becomes popular for other people to try to attach themselves to him to share in that popularity and influence. You look at something that's going on right now. There is in at Ashbury University in Kentucky, there it has been said that a revival has broken out. It's been going on for over a week now where there's been a song and testimonies and the like going on at this college, and people have started coming from all over the country to join this thing. But it will be it remains to be seen, it will remain to be proven out over time just how durable and just how lasting this revival will be. I myself have a bit of skepticism about it. But this is the kind of things that happens when there's a new movement, when there's a new popular leader, a new popular teacher, there's always going to be the bandwagon fans that want to come along for the ride. Now, by all means, if people are going to follow anyone, it should be Jesus. But it seems that many are following Jesus here in chapter 6 out of impure motives, and they are going to desert him at the first sign of trouble. Now, not only is there the issue of popularity, but we see specifically that Jesus receives this following because of the miracles he has performed, particularly the miracles of healing. Which raises this question, are the people interested in Jesus or are they interested in the healing? Put another way, again, I ask, are they interested in Jesus or are they interested in the this world benefits that come from being near and being associated with Jesus? And that is the question that John 6 is going to answer. It is a similar question we face in our day. Do we follow Jesus because we believe his gospel, because we believe his words of life? Or do we visibly attach ourselves to Jesus for whatever benefits we might receive? Now, we probably don't see as much of the latter anymore because Christianity is in many ways being marginalized more and more in our present society. But historically, it was not uncommon to see people Going to church, just because that's what respectable people in society did. It was a good place to make friends, a good place to build business contacts. Among young people, it was a good place to meet potential dating and marriage partners. But the interest wasn't so much in Christianity or Christ for many people. It was interest in these other things. Now, mind you, these secondary things are fine when kept secondary. The church is a community of people engaging in community life. But when these things become the main focus and not Christ or the faith that he delivered, that is where we have problems. Now, we see here at the opening of chapter 6 that Jesus went up to a mountain and he was sitting with his disciples. We do not know specifically which mountain is meant here. We are not told. He is in Galilee. He is probably somewhere near Bethsaida. 
he likely went up to find some seclusion, to find some time alone with his disciples, to instruct them, to spend time with them. Often at other times, we'll see Jesus go by himself to the mountains to pray to be alone. But because Jesus is now something of a rising celebrity, he is not able to get away from the crowds. They find him, they seek him out, they come up to this remote place where he is gone. Now we also read in verse 4, again, that this Passover is near. It may be that Jesus and his disciples were seeking some time of rest and reflection before once again making the journey to Jerusalem for the feast. But that's not going to happen on this day. The crowd is coming. And that brings us to our next point. After this outbreak of Jesus' popularity, we come to a predicament in verses 4 through 9. Inevitably, once word gets out as to where Jesus and his disciples are, the crowd shows up. They want more healing. They want more of their favorite new celebrities' thoughts and ideas. Of course, when people gather in great multitudes, there comes various logistical problems. When people gathered to hear Jesus, it wasn't just that they showed up for an hour or two and then headed back home was often a commitment of days or multiple days. It wasn't like they had cars, and as soon as Jesus was done teaching, they could hop in their car and have a 10 or 20 minute drive back home. They had to walk. It could be several hours or even days journey to where Jesus was. And so with this comes the need to eat. And so when Jesus sees the crowd approaching, he asks his disciples, particularly he asks Philip, what should be done about the food situation? Now, Jesus asked this question already knowing what he's going to do. He has a plan, but he wants to test the disciples and particularly test Philip in this moment. Maybe when you were in school, you had a situation like this. Your teacher or professor would ask you a question that obviously he or she knew the question or knew the answer to, but wanted to hear it from you. Sort of the Socratic method, teaching by asking questions. Me, I always hated that. When it happened, and yet I probably learned the most from doing it. Now, it's not certain why Philip gets singled out here. Philip was from Bethsaida. He was from the area. So maybe he was looked to as the one with the local knowledge of what might be done to address this problem. Not that it matters. We find out in verse 11 that this is a crowd of about 5,000 men. So 5,000 heads of household. That means there were likely women and children that would raise the number of this multitude much higher than even that. Now, Galilee was a rural area. It didn't have large cities. It wasn't like Jerusalem or Rome where it might be easier to come up with a large amount of food and supplies for such a crowd. Not that this would be an easy task even in the cities, as this was the first century. Famine and starvation were much more common. It was harder to grow food. They didn't have modern technology and innovation. So basically, Jesus is putting to Philip an impossible task. What are we going to do about feeding all these thousands of people? Now, Philip posed with this question. He does his best. He starts running the numbers comes out with this figure of 200 denarii, which would maybe be almost enough to buy a little bread for everyone there. 
Now, I've talked about before, a denarius is the equivalent of about a day's wage for the average day laborer. So 200 of those would be a person's wages for about six or seven months, an amount that in today's money would be in the tens of thousands of dollars. And Philip says even that would not be enough. Furthermore, it seems at least part of the implication is that even if that was enough, they probably don't have it. It seems that the zeal of this crowd was so great, they wanted to get to Jesus, that nobody thought about packing lunch. We only hear in verse 9 from Andrew that they find one young boy who has five barley loaves and two small fish, basically enough food for one small child for the day not for anyone else. Not a lot to work with. Andrew even recognizes the difficulty they are in with the rhetorical question, what are they, the the fish and the loaves, that they have among so many? Basically, according to normal and natural terms, they're nothing. They're not a drop in the bucket to deal with this problem. Again, this is one boy's sack lunch, that would get him through the day. It wouldn't help anyone else. So Philip and Andrew find themselves in a position that probably we all find ourselves in at various points in life, realizing that we are in over our heads, that we are faced with some problem that we cannot solve on our own. The odds are too great. The cost is too high, and we're not going to make it on our own. Now, isn't it something that they are finding themselves in this predicament in the very presence of Jesus Christ? He's sitting right there in front of them. They had these normal human reactions to the question. Jesus wants to know what they think about this food problem, and they start putting their brains to the question. But think of what they've already seen Jesus do. For instance, Philip and Andrew, as we heard that they were called very early on, they would have both been present at that wedding in Cana, where Jesus turned water into buckets and buckets of the best wine anyone had ever had. They'd also seen Jesus do healings, perform other miracles, show supernatural and prophetic knowledge. So for them, the right answer was not to look for their own solutions and their own powers to solve this problem. When Jesus asked, they should have asked him back, what Lord do you want us to do? What Lord will you do? And yet it's easy for us to say that about these disciples, but we often do the same thing. If we are in Christ, if we have known and we have seen and we have heard and tasted of his power and glory, We know that he has the power to save us, the power by which he has sustained and provided for us and guided us every step of our lives thus far. So often, when we are confronted with problems, when we are confronted with situations that we can't match and problems we can't solve, we try to dig our own way out. Knowing all that we know about Christ and his power, we're still looking for our own solutions under our own strength. Do we even stop to ask? Do we stop to pray to God for his wisdom, for his guidance, for his provision? Do we ask for him to help us again and be faithful again as he has been before and has always been? Sadly, we are all inclined 
to forget. But our God is merciful to us. Even as we are prone to forget and prone to try to get by on our own strength, God works and continues to work. This brings us to our next point. After the popularity and the predicament it creates, we come to provision in verses 10 through 14. Jesus, as we already saw, had a plan and a purpose in this to teach his disciples. He next orders his disciples to have this entire crowd be seated. Now, given that there was 5,000 men and an unnumbered amount of women and children, this was probably quite a task. It would take a while to get a crowd that large to sit down, especially they wouldn't have had like a sound system or anything to get the word out quickly. But they get everyone seated. And then Jesus takes this boy's lunch, these two small fish and these five loaves, and he gives thanks for them. This is part of why we pray before meals. We acknowledge God's daily provision, and it is what our Lord modeled for us. We should give thanks for all things, all of our material blessings, even the regular and routine ones. That's what Jesus does here. Now, one thing I find fascinating about this miracle is how seemingly uneventful it is. There's nothing flashy or showy about it. It's not like Jesus makes any kind of bold declaration or proclamation as he sometimes does in his other miracles. He simply gives thanks to the Father and starts passing out the food from this sack lunch. First to the disciples who pass it out to the crowd. And they keep passing it out. And they keep passing it out. And they keep passing it out until all 5,000 men and their families have everything they want, are able to eat until they are full, and until there is still quite a bit left over. Really, it would even be hard to comprehend with our understanding of time and space and the conservation of matter how something like this might even look. Two fish and five loaves don't just multiply to become a feast for thousands. Again, and it was even more. Once everyone was done eating, Jesus asked his disciples to go and collect the leftover bread. Not the leftover fish. It seems nobody really wanted to take the old leftover fish with them, but they do get the bread. They get 12 baskets. This would be a basket for every one of the disciples. They would not have been small baskets. They would have been large wicker baskets. This would have been quite a food supply for the disciples for quite some time. Note, too, how Jesus instructs them. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Just because God has made this great and miraculous provision does not mean that any of it should go to waste. When God pours out his blessings, his people ought to be good stewards of what he has given not prone to waste, not prone to excess. And also note that while Jesus is providing bread for everyone, he is providing especially and particularly for his people. God's people ought to have a particular interest in the wants and needs of other Christians, just as Jesus does for his disciples. We see this in verses like Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In our era of social gospel and social justice and social activism that has overtaken even much of the church, 
We can think that it is our obligation to help and meet the needs of everyone. But we ought to pay particular attention to the needs of God's people, to the needs of the church, the needs of those who are near us, who are entrusted to our immediate spheres of influence. This becomes all the more important, again, as biblical Christianity is being pressed to the margins of society in our day. And we see that this miracle provokes a very strong reaction in verses 14 and 15. First, we see the declaration by men present that Jesus is truly the prophet who has come into the world. This would be the prophet that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now on this, they are correct. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses, but he is more than that. And we will see later in this chapter that the devotion to Jesus by these people is short-lived. We next see in verse 15 that not only do they believe Jesus is the prophet, but they desire to make him their king. Now, Jesus is king. He is always king over all of creation. But they wanted to make him their particular local earthly monarch. But Jesus would not accept. He will only be king in his way, in his timing, on his terms. His kingship will not be confined to a piece of ground in Galilee. And so he refuses their kingship. He slips away to yet another place of seclusion. Because Christ is sovereign and he will carry out his will, which is one and the same with the Father's will. He will not die and he will not take his throne until the appointed time arrives. His kingship and his kingdom are too great and too powerful to be controlled and dictated by the whims of man. The people here gathered, they want Jesus as king because he gave them food and healing. Which, for an earthly king, that's a pretty successful program. But that is not ultimately what Jesus' kingship and what his kingdom are for. It is so that he might save his people from their sins and so gather and rule over them in all places throughout this age while subduing and conquering his and their enemies. Jesus will only reign on his own terms. But there is one last display of Jesus' rule and power that he will show in this passage. So we come now to our final point, which is Jesus' power in verses 16 through 21. We see that while Jesus has withdrawn to the mountain, his disciples board their boat to cross the sea to Capernaum. That was the city of Peter and Andrew, and by this point it was also essentially Jesus' hometown. But then they run into a storm. They run into a great wind. The text says that they end up rowing three or four miles. Now this is an important detail because Bethsaida was where they were and Capernaum was where they were going, which are only about three or four miles apart. Yet they have rowed this far and are very much still in the midst of the sea. They are lost. They are adrift on the sea in this storm. This has become a dangerous and frightening situation, and Jesus was not with them. But then next, 
they see a man walking towards their boat on the water. Now, this is not something you ordinarily see. It would be pretty scary if you were out on a boat in the middle of the night in the rough sea, and suddenly you see a person walking across the sea towards you. And initially, they have no idea who it is. They don't know that it's Jesus, and so they are all the more afraid. But then Jesus speaks to them, and they recognize him, and they welcome him aboard their boat, and then immediately they are brought safely into port, though they have been rowing for all this time and all these miles. Immediately when Jesus is with them, they are brought safely to their destination. Now what does this tell us? Not only is Jesus the master over disease, the Lord over food and the temporal things of this world, not only is he the king whose kingdom is too large to be constrained to a piece of land or a particular people, but he is the very God and Lord of the wind and the waves and the sea. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk on the sea, but you can't. Just in case you were thinking of trying it, just know that's not going to go well for you. I don't know if you've ever been caught on the water in a storm, but it's scary. It makes one feel rather powerless. But Jesus is sovereign over all of these things. He is able to bring his people safely through the tempest. And so in this text, Jesus has, against the enemies and opponents he faced, established with absolute certainty his sovereignty and lordship over all things. As we saw last time, the Pharisees and the priests have been put to shame by his testimony. We see now that the hungry have been filled with his bread. The storms and the seas are within his command. Jesus has all power and authority. There is no other power and authority that can compare. So what will you do with this Jesus, who is the Lord of all creation? who brings food, who brings healing, who calms the seas, the king to whom all other kings must give account, the God of whom there is no other. Well, there is only one proper response. That is to submit fully to his will. Though this is the one thing that so many are unwilling to do. Last week we saw Jesus' enemies who would not believe despite the miracles and all these witnesses to Jesus' true power and authority. This week we see people that will only follow Jesus because he meets their worldly desires and meets the needs of this life, provides healing, and he provides food. By the end of this chapter, they will desert him. Even in our day, Jesus, though he is still the unquestioned Lord of all things, he is rejected he is opposed, he is ignored in the world around us. People reject Jesus because they want a king for this world who deals only in worldly solutions to worldly problems. Or people reject Jesus because they want to be their own king and their own Lord and not subject to the power and authority of another. People reject Jesus because the false promises that the world with its idols and its false gods sound better. But friends, there is no other Lord, and there is no other king but this Jesus. 
and he demands nothing less than our whole lives. Though Jesus had all power, the day was coming where he would willingly suffer at the hands of evil men who opposed him. He would face arrest. He would face false charges and a kangaroo trial, and he would die a brutal criminal's death. Not only that, but in doing so, he bore the wrath of God against sin. And yet, because he is King of kings and Lord of lords and Lord of all creation, he did his greatest work yet. He rose from the dead. The Lord of all creation is the Lord of life and death. And his salvation, eternal life and blessedness, the promise of our resurrection, are offered as a free gift to those who would believe in his word. That is the call of the gospel to repent of your sins, to repent of your idols, repent of the false gods and lords of this age that you have held to, and to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus, and believe on Jesus for salvation. And then in response to this great salvation, to love him and serve him as he has called us to do. And so let us all worship and adore and love and serve this Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ, our King. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your power, for your glory which you have revealed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. He is a king beyond all kings and earthly kingdoms. He is the Lord of all of creation. He calms the seas. He rules over the needs that we may have in this life, over food, over disease, and he can provide all that we need. I pray that we would all trust in him, not only for our earthly provision, but most of all for our salvation for our forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And in light of this glorious truth, that we would be salt and light to the lost and dying world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.